Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time of studying God's word, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. We need to make sure that we are ready to focus, concentrate, and be challenged by the teaching of the Word of God as God the Holy Spirit takes these things and helps us to understand them and applies them to our own lives. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity, if necessary, to use 1 John 1.9, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for all that you are and all that you have done for us. In your love, you have been moved to provide a perfect salvation for us. In your justice, you have done it in such a way that it provides for our salvation without a compromise of your integrity and without putting a burden upon creatures to do that which is impossible. That you have provided for us a salvation wherein you did all the work. And that as we contemplate what the Savior has done for us and its cosmic implications today, we pray that we may be impressed anew with the manifold greatness, the expansiveness of your plan of salvation and how that work of Christ on the cross provided a redemption that goes far beyond anything we might imagine. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me today to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are basically the first act and the most dramatic presentation we have of the end times of human history as revealed to the Apostle John and recorded for us in what is known as the Apocalypse or the Revelation uh, given to John by the Lord Jesus Christ. The first three chapters, which we have already studied, relate to past and current uh, events in human history. The first chapter John referred to at the end of chapter 1 is the things that are, are the things that have been actually, that which has already been uh, done, which has got the revelation of Jesus Christ to John on the island of Patmos. Then in chapters 2 and 3, we have the things which are, there are, seven letters, seven evaluation reports to these seven different congregations in Western Asia Minor. These congregations represent the trends of history in the church age, the trends in the various churches. You can go throughout Houston and you can find a church that pretty much fits each of these uh, different categories. They are not to be understood as successive periods of history, although there are uh, good men who take that view It's hard to actually make it fit uh, into history. And then beginning in chapter 4, the scene shifts to heaven. We have a a new act, and this act begins in the future as John is taken up to heaven. In verse 1 of chapter 4, we read, After these things, that's a major clue that there's a shift that has taken place in the perspective of the revelation. After these things, after the things which have been, after the things which are, 
After these things, John says, I looked. This is a key verb. We see him say, I looked in verse 1 of chapter 4. The next time we have a verb related to seeing is in chapter 5, verse 1, and I saw. We could almost translate it, then I saw. It is a succession of events. Now, if we think of this like a, a dramatic event as a play, and we have an act, and what happens in chapter 4 is the setting of the stage. It is a description of what is what John sees when he is uh, taken into heaven through the opened door of 4 verse 1. That stands, as it were, as a picture of the uh, rapture of the church. And he begins to describe that which he sees in the throne room of God. And we have studied this in some detail already. It is a picture of God the Father sitting upon his throne. And it is a picture of God sitting upon his throne as the supreme judge of the universe. This sets the tone for the rest of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a book about divine judgment in history. It is a book that ends with the final judgment of all evil in human history, the judgment of evil and the restriction and condemnation of evil to the lake of fire. So it is a book that focuses on judgment. In that way, it gives us hope for the future because one of the things that that many people wrestle with today is the presence of evil and the presence of undeserved suffering. When this takes place, we often wonder just, is there really going to be an ultimate accountability for those who continue to thumb their nose at God, as it were, and yet they seem to prosper? This is an answer to that question that the psalmist would raise several times. How long, O Lord, how long will the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? There is something in us that recognizes that there is ultimately justice in the universe and that there must be an accountability. And in the book of Revelation, we see that that accountability may not take place in our lives. It may not be within our purview, but that ultimately there will be a ju- judgment and justice. So in chapter 4, we have the description of the heavenly throne. And we see that there is a host of people surrounding the throne. And in verse 3, or excuse me, verse 4, we're told that around the throne there were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes with crowns of gold. These are the resurrected, raptured, church-age believers that have already been rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. We've studied that in some detail already. We will study it more as we come to the conclusion of chapter 5, but we have to identify them as we go forward. These are not angels. Angels are never referred to as elders, never in the Scripture. This is a term usually related to the church. The function of these 24 is also not the function of of angels. We'll get into that in some more detail when we get down into verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. Uh, besides these 24 elders around the throne, there are four living creatures. This is a category of angel. They're not quite the same as cherubs or seraphs, cherubim or seraphim, but they are that same uh, upper category sitting around the throne of God related to his righteousness and holiness. And they sing a song in verse 8, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, a phrase that relates to God the Father, not the Son. We often think the one who is to come is Jesus because Jesus is coming toward the end of Revelation. But when we get to Revelation uh, 21, we discover that the Father also takes up his abode in the new heavens and new earth with man. So this is a title for God the Father as is Lord God Almighty. And then in verse 9, we're told that as John looks, whenever the four living creatures uh, give glory and honor to God, then the 24 elders fall down in worship of God, and they sing in verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So we see the first and foremost 
reason for worshiping God is because He is the Creator and we are the creature. And fundamental to understanding the dynamics of judgment in Revelation is the distinction between the Creator and the creature. And there's uh, two reasons for worshiping God in these two chapters. The first is because of his position as creator. The second is because of his work in redemption. That's brought out in chapter 5. I just want you to note that we have this emphasis here on worthiness. In uh, chapter 4, verse 11, it's repeated again. In chapter 4, verse 9, as they sing a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll. And then in verse 12 of chapter 5, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So the focus is on the innate character of God and his work of redemption, which comes from that. Well, that sets the stage from chapter 4. And chapter 5 tells us what begins to happen And chapter 5 does this in five scenes, each indicated by the phrase, and I saw. The first scene is verse 1. The second scene, verse 2, then I saw a strong angel. The next scene is in verse 6, and I saw and behold. And then the uh, last scene comes in verse 11, then I looked. These are the scenes that he describes so there's quick action moving through moving through chapter 5 we need to stop though in verse 1 because there's a lot there when i was putting together my notes on this chapter uh yesterday i was in albuquerque we'd finished our meeting on friday and and so i planned to come back on a late afternoon flight give me some time to just rest and and uh put together my notes for today So I did that. I got everything done for the first five verses, had about six or seven pages of notes. And I was, I summarized a particular aspect of this dealing with the purpose of the scroll. The more I thought about it last night and reflected upon it this morning, I realized that there's some significance to this scroll and what this entails that you can't just jump to and present as a conclusion. Sometimes as a pastor, when you're teaching, you have to make a decision, well, how detailed am I going to get? How detailed must I get to communicate the point? And I decided this morning that you have to get fairly detailed because this is, this is important. And it's usually not developed uh, very well, and it's usually skipped over. And there's some debate as to the significance of the scroll And it is extremely significant because I think it ties together for us uh, the whole of Scripture. It it is one of those things that you can't understand in isolation, that this is just a scroll that it's related to. Some call it the Doomsday Book. Others call it other, other things, the Book of Judgments, things like this, all of which have some significance. But there's something more significant to this that ties uh, revelation together. In order to understand it, you actually have to go back to Genesis 1 and you have to understand certain threads that run throughout the Scripture. There's things about that that I'm not going to go into this morning, but uh, if you're familiar with some of the parables that Jesus told, as I go through this, you will suddenly understand why he used those kinds of parables when he was talking to the Jews. Let's look at chapter 5. Verse 1, Jesus, uh, excuse me, John writes, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, him who sat on the throne is God the Father. In his right hand, or literally we have a phrase, upon his right hand, it's as if his hand is cupped, and in his hand there is resting a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This scroll, through the seven seals that are uh, securing it, comprise the remainder of the book of Revelation. Those seven seals are the seven seal judgments that begin the tribulation. The seventh seal judgment is opened, and it will reveal seven trumpet judgments. Then the seventh trumpet judgment will be opened, and it will reveal seven bold judgments. So these seven seals encompass the 
20 judgments that are the scope of the book of Revelation. So the opening of the scroll entails the unfolding of 20 different judgments upon the planet. First issue that we have to address in terms of interpreting this particular passage is understanding that word uh, scroll. It is the Greek word biblion. Of course, biblios is the word for book, that where we get our name for the Bible from the Greek word biblios. The ending there indicates that it is a small book. Uh, it is used interchangeably, though, with biblos. So even though it's a diminutive form, it does not necessarily mean something, a smaller book. In fact, there's another uh, word that is used later on in, in the book of Revelation for a small book. It refers to a long or lengthy written composition, usually on a scroll. Later, the word refers to a book. Uh, there's some debate on whether or not this should be a book or a scroll. Uh, the book in the sense of a codex. A codex was where they were taking manuscripts and then they would bind them together, something similar to the way a modern book is set up. But that did not come into practice until the second century. We're talking about 95 A.D. here. It could be very fairly uh, early kind of thing, but the technology was uh, relatively new and didn't spread in the ancient world like it does today. And so this would refer to a scroll and not to a book. It refers to a scroll. A scroll is a roll of parchment or paper that you would write or paint on. And it was usually uh, of some length. It could be short. It could be long. Uh, the ends were rolled around wooden sticks. Unlike the way you often see it portrayed in film, it was not open from top to bottom. It was open from right or from, yes, from, from right toward the right. You would hold the left stick in your left hand and you would unscroll it to the right. And as you scroll to the right, you would then collect it with your left hand and roll it up as you would read uh, from left to right. The Hebrew word, in fact, for scroll is the word megillah, from the root galal, meaning roll or to be round. It was made of papyrus. Papyrus was manufactured from uh, something like a bulrush that was uh, then uh, pounded out into single sheets that were about 10 inches by 8 not unlike our 8.5 by 11 standard uh, sheet of paper. The sheets were then joined together horizontally when there had to be a tremendous amount of writing. They would write in, they would, they would score the page in three-inch columns, and so the writing was then given in these three-inch columns as you move from, from left to right across the page. The role, uh, to give you an idea of how how long these would be, uh, a, an epistle such as Second John or Third John or Jude or Philemon, which are one chapter uh, books in the Bible, would occupy about one sheet of papyrus. Romans, on the other hand, would require a roll approximately 11 and a half feet in length. The Gospel of Mark would have been 19 feet long. The Gospel of John, 23 and a half feet long. Matthew would have been 30 feet long. Uh, Luke and Acts would have each been about 32 feet in length. And the book of Revelation would uh, take up about a 15-foot long uh, scroll. The scrolls were typically written on on the front and the back. As the papyrus was uh, mashed out, uh, and the pith was extracted, the, these strips would be uh, then cut and laid vertically, one on top of another, and there would be a row of, of strips uh, running vertically and going from left to right horizontally. And then through, with water and a mixture of glue, they would be pressed together and then beaten with a mallet until the surface was somewhat smooth. On one side, the grain of the papyrus would run horizontally. That side was known as the recto. On that side, the, was the, that was a primary side for writing because it was easier because of the way the lines and the fibers wrote. 
If the scroll of what you were writing was longer, then you would go over to the back side. Remember, the text says that it, this, this scroll was written inside and out. You would then go to the back side, which was called the verso, but it was not common to write on the back side. Usually in some types of documents, what they would do is they would have technical uh, the technical language inside. If it was a contract, the contract would be written on the inside, and then it would be rolled up, and then on the outside they would simply give a, a summary of what was on the inside, especially if the information on the inside was to be uh, kept somewhat private or dealt with private legal matters, then there would just be a title or something of that nature on the outside. The interior information was private. The exterior information, of course, could be read by just about uh, anyone. As we look at several passages in the Old Testament, remember a key principle for interpreting Revelation is that the events, the people, the symbols in Revelation are not new. Everything that we find in Revelation has its precedence in the Old Testament. We always have to go back to the Old Testament to understand what is happening that not all of what is given in Revelation happens in the Old Testament, but the people, the events, the symbols uh, come from the Old uh, Testament. Uh, Ezekiel Ezekiel 2, verse 9, we read, excuse me, Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of the book was in it. So this concept of God handing a scroll to the prophet has a precedent there in Ezekiel 2, 9, and 10. And in 2.10 we read, Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and outside. Written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. So there's a parallel to that scroll that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 2, 9, and 10. Now, a number of suggestions have been made concerning the nature of this scroll. As I said earlier, some think it's a book of judgment. Some have thought it's a book of inheritance. Some think it's a, a number of other different things. But the thing that fits the context of Scripture and background the best is that this was some sort of legal document. The fact that it was sealed with seven seals is consistent with a Roman practice of uh, securing their legal documents, especially title deeds and real estate contracts. This was common all over the Roman Empire and specific and especially known in the Middle East. Uh, marriage contracts would be sealed up this way as well as rental and lease agreements, uh, contracts for the release of slaves, things like this. So this tells us that this is some sort of legal document or contract. And of course, if you've been around here for a while, if I ever start talking about biblical contracts, the word that comes to your mind is a covenant. So immediately we ought to be thinking in terms of, of covenant when we think about this and what is the background related to that. Another Old Testament passage that has some parallels to this is in Jeremiah 32, verses 10 through 14. Again, we have a contract scroll and it is a title deed, giving us another clue to perhaps understand what's happening in Revelation 5 a bit better. Jeremiah 32, 10 through 14 reads, And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses, weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law of custom and that which was open. See, typically there would be two copies made. One would go into the temple, one would be kept by the purchaser so that he could prove uh, his ownership. Verse 12, And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, literally the God of Israel, take these deeds both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in the earthen vessel that they may last many days. So this shows that they would preserve these contracts much the same way we do today. We take it down, put it in a safety deposit box or a fireproof vault, something like that, and so that if anything happens, we have 
proof of ownership of that property which is important to us. So as we begin to try to decipher and understand the meaning and significance of this scroll, we have to keep three things in mind. First of all, the Bible is a unified whole from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. It is a unified whole of God's thought, but it's given incrementally so that first we have Genesis, we have the Pentateuch, then we have the historical books, we have Revelation given in the form of wisdom literature and poetry in the Old Testament. Then you have the uh, major prophets and in our English Bibles, minor prophets. And we get into the New Testament and we have the Gospels, which give us four different accounts of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was incarnate on the earth. Then we have the book of Acts, which tells us the history of the early church. Then we have epistles, which are primarily designed to teach and instruct church-age believers on how to live the spiritual life and dealing with various problems that people have. There's a heavy counseling emphasis in the epistles of the New Testament because Paul is basically dealing with problems that are brought to him. And so it gives us a framework for understanding how to help people deal with issues in their life. And then there's the conclusion of Revelation. Genesis begins the process. We have the creation there. We have the fall, and then we have the conclusion in the book of Revelation, so that we have to understand these were not written just haphazardly or randomly without connection. They all connect. There's a, there's a theme that flows through all of them in internal connections. So we must remember that earlier Revelation provides the background for understanding later Revelation. You don't just get it by liver quiver. You don't just stare at your navel and try to figure out, well, I wonder what scroll means. Well, this makes sense to me, so let's, uh, we'll just call it whatever uh, seems to make sense. The third point is that the events, the people, and the symbols of Revelation are to be understood by previous Revelation. Now, that's very important because the fact that this scroll that is being opened in 5.1 bears the mark of a title deed It takes us back to some important revelation from the Old Testament. If you read the Mosaic Law, which is the temporary covenant that God gave to Israel, a contract that he gave with them in the Old Testament, gave it to them on Mount Sinai prior to the time that they would go into the land that God had promised unconditionally and permanently to Abraham, as they get ready to go into the land... Think of land, think of real estate, think of title deeds, think of all of that. God gives them specific revelation in the Mosaic Law as to how to handle the land when they're there, how to deal with ownership of the land. What happens if somebody has land assigned to them and they can't keep it up, so they need to sell it? What happens if a foreigner, a non-Jew, comes into the land and, and sees a piece of real estate that they want to buy? Can they do it? What happens if, if uh, you want to sell your land for, uh, because of inheritance issues or some other pressure to some other tribe? Can you do this or can you not? And so these kinds of things are spelled out in the Mosaic Law. Mosaic law itself is written in a specific contract form. Now, that's important to understand because it's what is known today as a suzerain-vassal treaty form. Now, we've gone into some depth on this in the past in various studies that we've done on Genesis and some other other, uh, studies and dispensations and covenants. A suzerain is a term for a great king or a great lord or an emperor, the head of an empire. For example, at this time, at the the time of the Mosaic Law in history, you had the great Hittite Empire to the north and west of Canaan up in the area of modern Turkey. And that's where we got some of our earliest examples of this type of contract. And as as a great nation, the Hittites entered into treaties or contracts with subordinate nations, satellite nations. Uh, The Cold War came up with the term client nation. But the idea that the great king would was had his country surrounded by these smaller countries and he would uh, bless them and he would provide certain services, security, other things of that nature. But in return, he expected the vassal nation to take care of certain things for him. And so it is a conditional type of 
contract, and, and it is where the great king says that, okay, I'm going to do this for you. I will let you live, give you your land, all of these things, but in return, uh, the, these are the obligations that you have towards me, and if you fulfill those obligations, then you can stay in your land and enjoy peace and prosperity and blessing, but if you violate the contract, violate the treaty, then I'm going to uh, attack your country and destroy your dynasty and uh, put your people into captivity. See, this fits the framework for the whole Mosaic uh, contract. Now, the Susan Vassal Treaty form also has p- parallels to some other uh, biblical, biblical contracts, so we have to understand a basic principle. The contracts that were developed, these covenants that are developed in the ancient world, were not invented and they did not originate from man. They came from God. God is the first one we see to establish contracts or covenants in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 1 sets forth the obligations of man in terms of his position as the image bearer of God. All of this smacks of suzerain vassal treaty type of terminology. It's a question of what came first, the chicken or the egg. What came first, God or man? What came first, God's contracts or human contracts? Human contracts are modeled on the fact that from the very beginning, God structured his relationship with man in terms of legal contracts, in terms of legal covenants. So we speak in Genesis about three different Three different covenants. We have the Gentile uh, covenants as opposed to the later Jewish covenants. And the first is the called traditionally, if you have a Schofield reference Bible, the Edenic covenant. I call it the creation covenant. Genesis chapter 1, 27 to 28. Man is created in the image and likeness of God. Man is supposed to be God's vice gerent, not vice regent. It's a different word. Look it up sometime. A vice gerent. He represents God rules over the planet in God's place as God's representative. That's the essence of that terminology, image and likeness. He is to represent God as his image and rule creation. Well, his responsibility was to take care of this piece of what? Real estate. Back to real estate contracts again. Man's supposed to take care of this piece of real estate called planet Earth, and there was only one stipulation that he couldn't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he did, there was a penalty. Contracts have penalties for their violation. There's a penalty, and that meant he would die spiritually. He would be separated from God, and there would be a long-term condemnation of eternal separation in the lake of fire. So when Adam disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the contract had to be modified. First modification is what we call the Adamic Covenant, Genesis 3, 14 through 19, in terms of all the various responsibilities that God gave to, to Adam as the uh, vicegerent over creation. He was to uh, rule over the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field. He was to be fruitful and multiply. He was to rule over, over the garden and to watch over it and to keep it. Now what happens is that the ground gets cursed that uh, the, the woman who is the childbearer is going to have pain and suffering and childbearing, that the animals are now going to be in antagonism with man, so that all of the areas of primary responsibility in the first covenant are now, uh, there, there's now difficulty there. There's corruption that has entered into every aspect of the universe, not just man's separation from God, but nature is now corrupted because of the fall. Then there's another judgment that comes along uh, a few, about a thousand years or two thousand years later called the flood, the worldwide Noahic flood. That calls for a second modification of the original creation covenant, the Noahic covenant. Same terminology is used there about being fruitful and multiplying. There's discussion about the animals now having greater fear for man, other things of that nature. These three covenants all tie together. But ultimately, they relate back to man's responsibility to take care of God's planet. 
And the reason I go into this is because the suzerain vassal treaty contract that we call the Mosaic Law has basic principles related to real estate sales, contracts, and management that relate specifically back to what the, the overall structure we get out of the beginnings of Genesis. Let me just rehearse some of these for you under about six points to summarize the real estate principles in the Mosaic Law. First of all, the land was not to be owned by Israel. The land was owned by God. God is the one who owns the land of Israel. This is seen in um, Leviticus 25, verse 23, where God says, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. What God is saying is that Israel is a tenant. They have temporary uh, delegated ownership, uh, but ultimately the land belongs to God. God is just uh, dedicating this or, to, the, to the Jews so that they are uh, his tenants in the same way that Adam was the tenant over the earth. They are to be his representative over a much smaller piece of real estate. So the second point is that Israel was a tenant to the Lord, they did not have permanent ownership. The third point is that no land could be sold permanently. Same verse. No land can be sold permanently by an Israel because ultimately the Lord owned the land. Now, fourth point. Temporary transfer of tenant responsibility, or what they call sale, could take place, but it wasn't permanent it would revert back to the original tenant at the year of Jubilee. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year where the Jews would not work all year. Every 49th year would be a sabbatical year. Seven times seven is 49. Then every 50th year would be a special type of sabbatical year called the year of Jubilee. And at that time, all of these sales transactions would revert back to the original owner. It was a way of keeping the inheritance within the family so that wealth could be developed over time so that there was no loss of the land to uh, the Israelites. So temporary transfer could take place, but it always reverted back during the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25:28, And this would take place if, for example, the tenant got into trouble financially through mismanagement or through natural disasters, famine, whatever. He just didn't have the money to keep the place up anymore. So he would sell it, and that sale price would be related to how much time there was until the year of Jubilee. So if it's a 48th year, you're not going to be able to sell it for much because it's going to come back to you in two years. If it's the first year, second year after the year of Jubilee, then you're going to get more for the property because the, the new tenant can utilize it for the next 46 or 47 years before it's going to revert back to the original owner. But that's, it was designed in order to provide a financial safety net for somebody who made bad decisions, who uh, mismanaged the property or lost it for whatever reason. Now, the fifth point is that the transfer from one tribe to another was prohibited. So if you, if you needed to sell it, you couldn't sell, if you were in Judah, you couldn't sell it to, uh, you couldn't sell it to someone in the tribe of, uh, Reuben or someone in the tribe of Manasseh. Had to be someone else in the, in the same, uh, tribal area. Sixth point. After the land title or tenant responsibility was sold or transferred, it could be redeemed at any time by the kinsman redeemer. Ooh, now we're getting to the good stuff. You see, you've got to lay all that foundation to understand the significance of this last point because this is where it starts really getting juicy. If I sell it because I'm going bankrupt and I can't take care of the property, I've made bad decisions and, and, and I can't handle it, I sell it to uh, somebody and they take over responsibility. Now, I've got some money, but... I want it back. 
but it can be purchased back by a kinsman of mine, who is the term that's used in the in the Old Testament is a goel from the Greek, I mean Hebrew verb gaal, meaning to redeem or to purchase. And so that this kinsman redeemer can come in and can purchase that property back for me and redeem it for me. That's the background for the book of Ruth, that Boaz was an ex, uh, a distant goel, a distant kinsman, who could then come in and uh, redeem Ruth and to marry her so that she would not be left a widow. It is ultimately a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our kinsman Redeemer, He had to be a human being, a full, true human being, in order to die on the cross for us to pay that redemption price so that we could have freedom. So it begins, you begin to see the significance of this whole real estate transaction as it relates to a kinsman redeemer. In Leviticus 25, 25 and 26, we read, If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative, that's the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then he can, he can redeem it. Now let me back up a little bit and pull this picture together for you. When a sale took place, then two copies of that sales contract were made. One was kept by the purchaser, one went on permanent file in the temple. It's like we would file it down at uh, City Hall. In some cases, the purchaser might not take immediate possession of the land. And nobody takes possession of the land. He lives far away from the land itself, and so it looks like nobody's there. And so usurpers move in and squatters' rights, so to speak, and take over the land and start using it for whatever purpose uh, they wish to use it. And when this happened, eventually when the kinsman redeemer decided to come back and to uh, claim the land, what would he have to bring with him? The contract. He'd have to bring that real estate contract with him to prove that he was the rightful owner of the land. And so at that time, he would take his copy of the scroll, the real estate contract, and he would have to break the seals in order to open the scroll, which would prove that he was the rightful owner of the land. The kinsman redeemer, to take the land, he had to fulfill two basic responsibilities. The first is he had to pay the redemption price. The second is that he would have to take possession, and by doing so, he would have to evict the usurpers who had come in and squatted on his property. Now, I think the application is probably becoming very clear to most of you, but let me make sure you haven't missed the point. Let's apply this to God's ownership of the earth. God owns the earth. Mankind, the human race, are simply tenants on the planet. Man was created in the image of God to rule as God's vicegerent on the earth, to represent God and to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. The original intent was that man would possess the earth as his eternal possession. But man abdicated his rulership when he fell into sin in the garden. Who took over? Satan took over as the ruler of planet earth. And this is recognized by Satan even in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, when Satan is tempting the Lord Jesus Christ with all the kingdoms of the earth. There's no debate over the fact that he has a right to them. He's the usurper. He says to the Lord, all this authority I will give you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. He is the usurper. He is the current ruler of the planet. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls him the God of this age. John 12.31, Jesus recognizes him as the present ruler of this world. Ephesians 2.2, 2, the Apostle Paul says that he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the usurper who has come in and has squatters rights and is trying to establish his kingdom on planet earth. But he does not have the title deed. The title deed goes back to uh, the original owner, which is 
God. So the land, when Adam sinned, the land became cursed and came under judgment. We read this in Genesis 3:17 through 19. At the end of the uh, outline of the curse and the end of the, this would be the revision to the original creation covenant, part of the final part of the Adamic covenant. God said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. See, it just didn't affect man. It affects everything. It affects the soil. It affects the, the structure of planet Earth. It affects geology. It affects botany, biology. Everything gets affected. God says, both thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So the earth is cursed, and the earth is currently under that curse and awaiting redemption. We see this in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, for the earnest expectation of the creation, that's, that's what we call nature, that includes everything in the universe which has been affected by sin. Everything has been affected by sin, not just man's relationship to God. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That is when church-age believers return with Jesus Christ at the second coming to finalize the taking control of the planet back to God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That happened in Genesis 3, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be, future tense, delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. See, redemption isn't just talking about the fact that Christ paid the penalty for your sins on the cross. Redemption is talking about the fact that Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross. So that as a result of the payment of that redemption price, the consequences of sin throughout the universe, not just in terms of personal individual redemption and salvation, but in terms of the redemption of the planet, takes place. So what's happening in... in oh, let me go on to Romans 8.22... For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits, uh, skip to the end of verse 23, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So all of this fits, fits together and has a future orientation. Now, what were the two things that the kinsman redeemer had to do? Number one, he had to pay the redemption price. Number two, he had to come and take possession of the land. The redemption price is paid for on the cross because we know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your empty manner of life, from the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. As of a what? As of a lamb. What's the image we're going to see in Revelation 5? He's the lamb of God. So all this ties together. That's why I said you can't just go in and study this stuff without understanding how it fits within the entire uh, framework of Scripture. So Jesus Christ is the kinsman redeemer paid the price on the cross with his death. Well, the second thing that the kinsman redeemer has to do is he has to return and take control of the real estate. This is what happens when Jesus Christ returns. He opens the scroll, which is sealed with seven seals, the judgments that must take place in order to evict the usurper from the planet. When he opens the last seal, and we have the final judgment, the seventh bold judgment, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the planet, this is when we return with him. This is when the redemption takes place, and he kicks out the Antichrist, the false prophet. Satan is bound for a thousand years, and he takes title to the planet and establishes his kingdom. So when we read Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, that there is a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals, don't think of this as just a, a book that's going to tell us about the end. This is a title deed to the planet. And the search that we're going to see starting in the next verse is for someone who's qualified to hold the title deed. 
And that one who's qualified can't be just God, but must be a man because it's a man to whom the title deed was originally given, the first Adam. It is only the second Adam who, as true humanity, can come as our kinsman redeemer and pay the price. In the same way he paid the price for our sins so that we can have salvation by simply trusting in him, he comes to redeem the planet and it rolls back the curse on the planet so that there is a, eventually there will be a new heaven and a new earth following the millennial kingdom. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful for the fact that through the lens of this one verse we see the panorama of your plan of salvation. We understand that man has fallen, all has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, but that that sin is not just a matter of making man a little sick or giving us a few problems or headaches, but it's a, a problem that is systemic to all of creation. And yet your plan is so vast and comprehensive that you recognize that, that in that one death of Christ on the cross, as he hung between heaven and earth and paid for the penalty of sin, that that had ramifications and implications and application to every molecule of the universe. For it not only provides for our personal salvation, but it provides the basis for the return of the ownership of planet earth back to uh, back to mankind in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ to fulfill our ultimate destiny. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right where you sit, you can determine your position in eternity. It has to do with your relationship to Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of what you've done or haven't done, church membership, Ritual, morality, or any other factor has to do with your faith in Jesus Christ. Simply summarized, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us, encourage us with what we've studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.